Hello everyone and welcome to Classic Gaming Today, where we take a look at the gaming experiences of the past through the eyes of the present. I'm your host Tony, and today we are going to look at The Lost Vikings, a third-person puzzle platform game developed by Silicon and Synapse, published by Interplay in 1992. It was released on the Super NES and later ported to a few different platforms, Amiga, MS-DOS, and the Sega Genesis. Before we begin, I do just want to give a special shout-out. This episode was actually recommended, or this game was actually recommended by someone out on Twitter, Alex Dullard. So, Alex, thank you very much for the, for the recommendation. I'm looking forward to talking about the game today. So, before we get into the content of the of the game or the crux of what we're going to be talking about just a little bit of housekeeping as we usually do at the beginning of each episode i am once again excited to be here and to be talking about another classic game with all of you i truly want to keep building this community we've gotten some good feedback so far want to continue to get that feedback and continue to evolve the podcast as we continue to move forward if you do have any ideas or you'd like to reach out there's a couple of ways you can reach me today I do have an email address. It is classicgamingtoday at gmail.com. And I also have a Twitter account, which has the handle at classicgamingt. So if anybody would like to reach out, if you either have feedback on current episodes or you want to talk about games we've talked about or games we haven't discussed yet, or if you want to suggest other games that we should cover, just let me know. Or if you just want to have a discussion, I'm totally fine with that too. Like I said, I do want to continue to build this community. I am very excited about it. And I hope you all are too. And I hope everybody will come along for the ride because I am, I am definitely enthused about continuing to work on this podcast and build the community. So for anybody who may be new and for anybody who has been here before and wants a little bit of a refresher, I'll just go through really quickly what the anatomy of an episode looks like. We will start by talking about the history of the game that we're covering. We'll go through the historical context, how the game was created, what the designers were thinking, all that kind of stuff. Then we will dive into a sort of pseudo-review kind of section, and we'll focus on the kinds of review-like categories that a lot of people normally focus on. Things like graphics, how does the game look, sound and music, narrative, story, if the game has one playability and controls, and then finally the overall feel. What does the experience feel like playing the game? And then with all of that out of the way, we will talk and reach a verdict and assign each of the games we cover to one of several categories. At the very top of the list is entry into the classic gaming pantheon, which means even though the game may be old, even though the game may have been created 30 years ago, you should still play it today because it is that darn awesome. It is truly a classic. Second rank, not quite in the Pantheon, is the Golden Oldies. So these are games that if you have nostalgia for it or you enjoy the genre, you should probably play the game. And it holds up really, really well to uh, today, even compared to games of today. May not be one of the top, top games, at least as far as my opinion goes, but it is definitely something worth your time. Our third category starts to get into a little bit of tricky territory. That is the mediocre mention. That means that it's okay. I mean, it's not something that should be totally forgotten. I can't really recommend you to play it, but you might still have a good time. And maybe you'll, maybe you'll enjoy it. Most likely, if you're like me, probably not as much. And then, of course, there is the very bottom category, which is the footnote. 
which means probably don't need to revisit this thing at all. I took the pain, so you don't have to. Let's just leave it to the annals of history, and we don't need to think about it again. As of this episode, there is only one game that has reached the Pantheon, and that is Lemmings. Now, granted, we are only three episodes in, so you would expect the Pantheon to be pretty bare right now, but we are going to continue to build that as we go. I am excited to see where it goes. So we are going to start talking, with that out of the way, we're going to start talking about The Lost Vikings, which is a puzzle platform game developed by a company called Silicon and Synapse back in 1992. The year is actually a little bit tricky because one source that I was referencing said the game was developed in 1992. Wikipedia says 1993. I don't know which one is right. I'm going to go with the 1992 one because the source seems to be a little bit more credible. So for all intents and purposes, Lost Vikings was developed and released in 1992 by Silicon and Synapse, which is a company that may not necessarily be a household name. We'll talk about how that company evolved over time. It might surprise you for those of you who who do not know. So Silicon and Synapse was a small company founded in February of 1991 by several recent college graduates, and they were Michael Morhaime, Frank Pierce, and Alan Adam. Uh, That's A-D-H-A-M. Now, the original focus for this company was it was definitely designed to be a gaming company, but its original focus was on porting games to different consoles and platforms, not necessarily creating their own intellectual property or their own titles. So just so everybody is on the same playing field, the whole concept of porting a game. So think about it like this. When a development company creates a game, a lot of times that game would be focused on a specific platform. So as an example, You might have a company that releases a game on, and just to keep things retro, let's say a company releases a game on the Super Nintendo Entertainment System. Sometimes that company that created the game will only work on the game or only be involved in the development of the game for that specific platform. They may outsource the development of the game for other platforms that they may not have as much expertise with, or they just might try to do things more in parallel, they might ex- they might outsource that work to a different company to port the game from that base original platform to other platforms so that other people can play it that don't necessarily have, say, the Super Nintendo in this example. You see a lot of that with the distinction between consoles and computer games. You see that a lot because for whatever reason, for a long time, consoles and computer games were two totally different environments and really didn't have a lot of overlap at some, but not a whole heck of a lot. So a lot of times development companies might work on a computer game title and then give the porting duties over to a different development company that would then port it into the console specific code or vice versa, depending on the situation. So Silicon and Synapse That was their wheelhouse early on. When they were originally formed, they ported games to different platforms. So basically, they were one of those outsourced companies that would go out and they would port the games that other developers were making to other platforms. Probably a good way for them to get some experience and a little bit of a foot in the door in the gaming industry, especially being a brand new company at the time. But they decided relatively early on that while the work that they were doing for porting games was all well and good, 
they started to get a desire to begin working on more original titles, things that they would actually develop for themselves that were original standalone kinds of experiences, not necessarily ports of experiences that other gaming companies had created. So they decided that they wanted to do this, but then they had to figure out what was the game that they wanted to make. What would be that first game out of the gate that they would create as an original intellectual property or an original game that originated from that specific studio at the time the team and this is actually interesting timing and i swear i didn't plan this out but at the time the team was was really enjoying lemmings which was the game that we talked about back in our very first episode where uh, basically lemmings was a computer title that was a puzzle platformer kind of game and basically the goal there was to uh, escort or help a bunch of these creatures called lemmings get from the beginning of a level to the end of the level. And across the level, there would be any number of obstacles that would, you would have to help the lemmings traverse. And in that game, you didn't really have direct control over any of the characters. You could assign individual lemmings actions, which would then let them do things in the environment or build a bridge or dig through a wall or dig under the ground. But you could basically just assign those actions and the lemmings would perform those actions in your proxy. You would click on them, they would perform the action. And the goal was to try to save as many of those lemmings as possible to get them safely from the beginning of the level to the exit of the level. So Silicon and Synapse had played lemmings and they decided that they were going to make a lemmings-like game albeit for consoles. So the company was really focused more so on console development, not so much PC or computer development. But they didn't want to just make an outright clone and create a game with, with animal kinds of creatures or anthropomorphic creatures that would walk around the world and, and just kind of walk around and be followed and you can do actions on. They decided that they were going to make a Lemmings-like game, but they were going to use Viking-centric themes throughout the game. So instead of the traditional lemmings kind of builders or diggers or whatever, they would have Viking-based characters that might be torchbearers, or they might have castles that need to be infiltrated and walls that needed to be climbed, or there might be combat where individual characters could defeat enemies. So similar in style in that they wanted to create a game where you would have passive control or you'd be able to assign skills to characters and they would traverse some environment and solve puzzles within that environment very similar to what they were what lemmings had done and what they had seen in lemmings and once again similarly the goal was to have hundreds of these little vikings on the screen at one time they were going to design the characters to be very small around eight pixels tall very similar to what lemmings was lemmings they were all very small pixel based characters that you had discrete control over being able to assign individual lemmings, individual actions. Now, Silicon and Synapse was a primary console developer. That was their wheelhouse. That was what they were really focused on. So if you're working in the console development environment, especially back in the early 90s, you had to work within the limitations of the hardware, and you also had to try to understand what the expectations of the market were the console market is a very different market or was a very different market than what the personal computer market was personal computers had a wide slate a wide gamut of experiences primarily because the main user interface into computers at least at the time were or was mouse and keyboard now there were game pads and joysticks and things like that but 
predominantly mouse and keyboard was the control mechanism. And you would usually play games on a monitor, which is situated, I don't know, a couple of feet in front of you, generally speaking, at the time. So it was a little bit more of an intimate experience, whereas consoles and console game players at the time were primarily gaming on television screens, and they were using controllers and control pads to control their game. So a little bit of a different kind of market, a little bit of a different kind of expectation. Within the console market, most of the time, game players liked to have direct control of their characters. They didn't want to necessarily assign actions and watch their characters do things. They wanted to actually make the characters do things by controlling them themselves. They also, generally speaking, preferred to see large, detail-rich graphics versus just a pure God's-eye view of the world. Now, that doesn't mean that there weren't games that employed those kind of things. The more overarching, eagle-eye kind of perspective or you acting as, as a god, so to speak, and controlling the characters without directly moving them yourself. There were certainly games like that on consoles. You can look right at Lemmings as an example, as one of those ports that had happened, and that was on consoles, and it worked fine, and people enjoyed it. There was also Populous, which was released, I believe, a little bit earlier. Sim City was another example of more of a management kind of sim that really wasn't or didn't have direct character control. So there were these examples out there from a console perspective, but Silicon and Synapse really wanted to try to stand out in the console competition or the competitive scene within the console development arena. And because they were a new company, they didn't want to try to do something that was incredibly niche and they wanted to try to do something that was a little bit more mainstream, so they decided that their original design plan around making a pure Lemmings-based clone probably wasn't going to work out the way they wanted it to. So it quickly became apparent that having hundreds of these tiny characters being controlled uh, via indirect action might not really appeal to the market. It might be a cool game, but it may not appeal to the console market in general. And also, just tangentially, Apparently, the character models didn't really look particularly good on a television screen. So for those reasons, the company decided to go in a different direction. And what they decided to do was to make the focus be on a smaller number of characters, each of those characters having several skills that would ultimately allow them to be unique and distinct from each other. So focusing on a smaller number of characters allowed the graphics for those characters to be made larger and have more detail added to them. So the company designed the characters to be similar, if not to compete directly with some of the other gaming mascots of the time, like Mario or Sonic, who were generally speaking bigger characters and a lot of detail in the pixel art that went along with that. So that's really what the goal was here, was to try to move away from that those mini eight pixel kinds of characters into something that was that was a much bigger, much more detailed kind of character that players could then control. Now, these graphics and and the way that they wanted to design this, the graphics were very bold. They had bright, vibrant colors. And now this is an interesting story. The reason for having the colors so vibrant was actually driven because of the fact that one of the company's founders, Alan Adam was colorblind. So for him to be able to approve and sign off on the art for the game, or even games in the future, the colors had to be turned up so that he could actually perceive the different shades of what the colors were because of that colorblindness. So the artists, before they would go and present anything for approval, would start 
turning the colors up, they would start increasing the vibrancy of the colors so that he would be able to review them. He'd see the colors, he would approve whatever he's seeing. And then the artist would go back and they'd tune the colors back down so that when they would eventually release the game, it was a much more uh, understated kind of visual palette. So it wasn't quite as vibrant, wasn't quite as bright as what they had to go forward with for those internal reviews. Now, one day, they just decided to leave the colors the way they had presented them to Alan Adam. And that was pretty much that they, they just decided we're going to leave it like this and let's see what happens. And that ultimately is what ended up defining the overall style and the colors that were used in the lost Vikings. And interestingly, it wouldn't just define that one game. It would, that style, that general style of a very vibrant, rich, bright colors would define every single game made by Silicon and Synapse into the future. So that one decision or that one specific instance is what drove the entirety of the company's gaming catalogs from this point on being a much more vibrant kind of experience from a graphical perspective. Now we did mention that working in the console environment requires a certain degree of compromise because consoles, especially at this time in the nineties, weren't really as powerful as the traditional computer that people might use to play some games. So within those limitations, there could only be a certain number of colors that could be used at any one time. The color palette that was able to be displayed on the screen at any one time was limited. So the choice to use bolder colors rather than more subdued shading was also a result of some of that were some of those limitations that they had just by working on consoles or in a console environment. Now, as the Lost Vikings evolved over the course of its development, the number of characters would eventually reduce from the original goal, which was hundreds of these teeny characters that you could indirectly control down to five main characters. And then eventually it would settle down at three distinct playable characters each of whom had specific skill sets that could be used and combined in different situations to solve the game's puzzles. Now, this is an interesting tidbit from Frank Pierce, who was one of the other founders of the company. He said that the game really did evolve over time. It wasn't like they sat down and had a robust design documents uh, laid out right up front. I mean, they certainly had design in their head and they certainly had some things documented, but as far as how the game evolved and the technical challenges that they had to address as the game continued to evolve from what was a lemmings based clone into much more of a discrete action platform or puzzle action platform, I guess, kind of uh, experience. It was not like there was a well-defined way to get from point A to point B they winged it a little bit and uh, they didn't have everything very specifically laid out in advance. So it was definitely a learning experience for them as they went through and developed the game, but a little bit of uh, chaos, I guess I'll say during the development life cycle for the lost Vikings. So the general concept of the game that they were working towards now that they settled in on three characters that were going to be used throughout the game is that you would have a, an individual puzzle level, and you'd have a series of puzzle levels. Each of those levels, every single Viking, so all three Vikings, would have to make it to the end of the level. Now, they recognized early on that this could be cumbersome to navigate all three characters one by one, because let's say you get through a particularly tricky area with one of the Vikings. Well, now you've got to redo it two times, and that's 
that definitely opens yourself up to potentially uh, dying or having to restart the level because the goal was you needed to save all three. It wasn't like you could beat the level by only having two out of your three Vikings survive or one out of the three. You had to get everybody to the exit successfully. So they started to think about how they could potentially off or mitigate the the difficulty or the cumbersome nature of being able to or having to navigate all three characters through the game. Now, they did try and experiment with autofollow, but, and I will attest that this is absolutely true, the levels were just so darn dangerous, and we'll talk more about this when we look at the review of the game, but the levels were just so dangerous that autofollow was just more problematic than it was worth. Basically, you couldn't have autofollow work in this game and be successful. They just died anyway. So they decided to nix the whole autofollow thing, and basically what they did was focused on designing levels and puzzles in such a way that by the time you got to the end, by the time you solved the puzzle and figured out how to get through the level, most of the characters, if not all three of the characters, would already be near the end of the stage. Now, most of the way they did that was within the stages, especially later on in the more difficult stages, there were basically discrete paths that each character would have to go down and then they would all eventually converge and you'd be right near the end of the level anyway. So it really removed some of that backtracking or at least reduced the amount of backtracking and the amount of, of difficult based replay that didn't really add any additional value or give you a different kind of experience just by going through the level again. They did minimize that and I think they did a pretty good job with uh, doing so. This design philosophy or paradigm also led to smaller levels being created. If you can think about Lemmings or you think about games like that, I wouldn't call them sprawling per se, but they were definitely relatively large levels, especially some of them. They spanned several screens and you could kind of see the entirety of the level just by panning across within those games. Now, the Lost Vikings decided to constrict things a little bit more in that the overall play spaces were smaller. They weren't really sprawling levels like Lemmings. The puzzles were much more confined. There was some difficulty there, though. There's still a bit of a, a challenge as far as how much of the world you can see at any given time. And once again, we'll talk about that in a little bit. But they did try to keep the levels relatively small in comparison to games like Lemmings to keep that experience tighter and to keep those characters much closer to each other so that it would reduce the amount of friction moving forward. Now, this process of development continued and iterations continued on the game design until eventually they arrived at a final version with tightly tuned puzzles and platforming elements that were integrated together. And they finally released the game in 1992. Lost Vikings was pretty positively received overall. There was a lot of praise given by the critics and press around the comedy and the puzzles and the platforming elements that were included in the game. There were several publications that named the original Lost Vikings to several top 100 games list, including the original Super Nintendo version. The Genesis version also got some pretty good press as well. I did hear that the Genesis version, the music was not quite as punchy or not quite as good as the Super Nintendo version. We'll actually listen to tracks, a couple tracks from both, so we can do our own comparison. I played the Super Nintendo version, so I don't have a ton of exposure to the Genesis version, but we will take a look at that and listen to at least a couple of sample tracks between the two and see see if we can spot the difference. But apparently the Super Nintendo version, at least 
in the opinions of a lot of people, were better or was better than what the Genesis version music was. There were other platform differences when you look at how the game was ported, and the biggest one was around multiplayer. So as you might expect, a game with three different characters, you would expect potentially to have some degree of multiplayer, and the Lost Vikings did. On the Super Nintendo system, you could have two players control the Vikings, which basically meant out of those three characters, you can control two at any point in time. And then there would be a third Viking that was effectively sitting idle that you would be able to switch back and forth between, or I guess any of the players could switch back and forth between. On the Genesis, there was actually an option to have three different people control the characters, which basically meant all of the Vikings could be controlled by by individual people, which would presumably allow you to work through the levels a little bit easier. I did read, and I don't, I didn't test this myself, but I did read that even with that multiplayer ability, you still, the camera still focused on the first player or the one player uh, Viking, whoever was controlling, whatever the first player was controlling, that was how the camera focused, which I could see being problematic uh, across a lot of those levels, especially the later ones, as you had to really juggle multiple things happening at once and switching back and forth from characters. I'm sure it was a fun time. I have no experience with the multiplayer, so if anybody does or, or you say, hey, this was an awesome experience, let me know. I would really love to hear from somebody who has more multiplayer experience with the Lost Vikings because I just played it solo myself, so there was really no impact there. I would just switch between the characters as I needed to myself without having to rely on anybody else. So around this time, after the game was released, the company decided that it needed to rebrand itself, or at least rename itself. So silicon, the word silicon was getting confused with the word silicone, and silicone was most famously known as the material used to create breast implants, and the company wanted to avoid confusion, so they renamed themselves to Chaos Studios, which, according to their founders, was a reference to their iterative and somewhat less defined development style at the time. And we talked about that a couple minutes ago, where the development, the design was was set in to a degree, but it was not etched in stone and there was constant iteration there. So the overall development cycle, the overall development process was a little bit more chaotic than what you might expect with at least companies that might have been around a while. Once again, this company was relatively new, so their style, they were still trying to find their footing as far as how they were going to develop things moving forward. A little bit later, the company, which was now Chaos Studios Incorporated, became acquired. It was acquired by a distributor called Davidson and Associates, and this was around 1994. That acquisition actually caused the company to rename themselves yet again. This time, the company name would stick, it ended up being Blizzard Entertainment. And yes, it is that Blizzard, the same Blizzard that pretty much everybody knows today that has created several franchises that are some of the best-known franchises in gaming, those being things like Diablo, StarCraft, Warcraft, and of course, World of Warcraft, the extension. Uh, so Blizzard started out as Silicon and Synapse, and one of their first games, if not their very first individually created game, non-ported experience, was Lost Vikings. And there is a there is a legacy 
with Lost Vikings. Lost Vikings was not just a one-off kind of thing. It Its legacy has persisted today. Blizzard didn't forget about its original game or its heroes. The three Viking characters that would eventually be the main characters of the Lost Vikings would end up having cameos in multiple Blizzard titles throughout the years. They had brief parts, if not background NPC kinds of parts, in games such as Blackthorn, Rock and Roll Racing, World of Warcraft, Heroes of the Storm, and then unfortunately, Heroes of the Storm, I heard, is getting shut down, but for those who don't know, Heroes of the Storm is effectively Blizzard's answer, or it was their answer to League of Legends and Dota 2, uh, but apparently that game is getting shut down. The Lost Vikings were actually a hero in that game. There was also a sequel, Lost Vikings 2, which was bigger and more complex than the original. Two more characters were added in addition to the original three Vikings who all got some reworked skills, and it was released on more platforms, some of which were CD-based platforms, and those CD versions contained uh, more realistic, and I'll use the term loosely, pre-rendered 3D graphics, had some CD music in there, and also included voice acting, which, as you might expect, the more cartridge-based console versions could not really replicate because the the overall size requirements just weren't there, where the size, the space wasn't available on the consoles. The Lost Vikings continues to remain relevant even today. And most recently, the game, along with its sequel, I believe, was included as part of a bundle of games released for Blizzard's 30th anniversary, which was called the Blizzard Arcade Collection. That came out back in 2021. So that was the last that I've seen the Lost Vikings in in regular gaming culture today. But who knows? We may see them again in the future. So with that, we are going to transition to talk more specifically about how it felt to play the game in 2022. I'm going to queue up some music and we will be right back. Okay, let's get more specific about The Lost Vikings. As we talked about, The Lost Vikings was developed by Silicon and Synapse, which would eventually become Blizzard Entertainment, and published by Interplay in 1992. So what exactly was this game? When I say a platform puzzle game, what does that really mean? So I'll talk specifically about this game and how it's structured. Basically, the way it works is you have in each level, you have three Vikings. There are three Vikings that you have control over. And each of those Vikings have different abilities, different skills, different overall, uh, I guess, attributes would be a way to put it. And within each of those levels, the levels were designed in such a way that different puzzles required the skill sets of individual Vikings in order to proceed. And some of those levels would actually require the integration of multiple skill sets in order to be successful. So before we talk about some of the specific examples, I just want to talk about who the three Vikings were because they did actually have a personality, each of them. So the three Vikings, one of them was Eric the Swift. Now, Eric was the fast Viking. He was also the most agile. Basically, the thing that set Eric apart was he was pretty darn speedy. He could run relatively quickly at least quicker than the other Vikings. 
He also was the only Viking that had the ability to jump, which is an interesting mechanic in that when you can't do it, you really want to. So I found myself as I was playing some of the other Vikings, I, at least at the beginning, I was definitely missing the fact that I couldn't jump with other Vikings. I could only jump with Eric. And that was definitely a, an interesting gaming choice or an interesting mechanical choice to keep jumping to only one character. They, uh, Eric also had a special ability in that you could run and then if you pressed the Y button, you would basically lower your head and you could ram into the wall or ram into enemies. And there were actually secrets that were found behind some of the walls where you would bash into a wall and sometimes the wall would disappear and reveal either food to allow you to regain some hit points or might have a secret weapon that would make the level a little bit easier or your ability to be able to to beat some of the enemies a little bit easier. So there were some interesting secrets spread out across the game that were only accessible by bashing down the wall with your skull, as Vikings tend to do. Second Viking was Baliog, and I think that's how you pronounce it. I'm not entirely sure, but Baliog the Fierce. Now, Baliog was the weapons guy. He was the only Viking that could actually attack other enemies. All of the other Vikings, so there's three Vikings, the two other Vikings beyond or besides Baliog could only attack enemies if they had a special item picked up in the level that would cause some sort of damage to the enemies. So there are a couple of different items. One of them is is kind of a bomb-like, full-screen, enemy-clear kind of thing, where if you activate it, every enemy on the screen dies. If one of the non-combat Vikings has that item, they can use it in the level. Each of the items are consumable, so once you use it, it's effectively gone, unless you have a couple of, there are a couple of items that, that do persist in that they grant you a skill versus just executing a skill one time. But Baliog had the ability to attack enemies just by virtue of, of who he was. His skill set was around attacking enemies, and he had two different attacks. One was with his sword so if you're if you're in close quarters combat with an enemy you can use your sword to slash at them and he also had a bow and arrow where he could use his bow and arrow to attack enemies from range those bow and arrows could also be used to activate switches or buttons that would normally not be reachable by a character or might be in too dangerous of an area to be reachable by one of the other characters he could shoot the arrow activate them and then something would happen in the level somewhere that you could then go off and continue to explore. And then finally, our third Viking was Olaf the Stout, and he was pretty much the tank Viking, for lack of a better term. He had a gigantic shield, and he could pretty much block most enemy attacks. I say most because there were a couple of enemies that that did end up attacking, and the one that, that really sticks out of my head, there's an enemy that's basically like a buzzsaw or almost like a circular saw that spins around on the ground, in uh, one of the or several of the factory based levels and i don't know that his shield really does anything against that it never worked for me <laughs> but maybe that was just me doing something wrong but for the most part his shield allows you to block any projectiles any attacks in the game and then he also can use his shield one of the skills he has is you can raise his shield above his head and you can then float from platforms down to other platforms. You can kind of float through the air. And that's used in a lot of the puzzles in the game, is that whole concept that he can actually float around and, and take things a little bit slower. So there are a lot of spike traps later in the game that he may need to float over or around in order to be successful. 
So you can see those individual Vikings have specific skills, and you could already start thinking about how those skills could potentially come together to create integrated or, or combinations of those skills. So just a few examples. If you're playing as Olaf and you raise your shield above your head, Baliog or Eric can actually step on top of that shield to effectively gain additional height. Now, Eric would be able to jump on top of that shield, which might allow him to jump onto a platform that's further away and, and continue to regress through the level. Baliog, of course, could not jump, but he could walk off of other platforms and land on the shield, which would then give him some additional height as well, albeit he wouldn't be able to jump beyond that to get to new platforms. But there are a couple of stages where that actually comes into play and that actually uh, helps out. There are other combinations of skills as well. One of the things that I like to do as I went through the levels is I would focus on Olaf because, like I said, he was the tankiest kind of character, and I would basically put him out to the front of my group. I would have his shield at the ready, and I would have the other characters progress behind him so that if we found an enemy, he would stay up in front with his shield raised, and then I would switch over to Baliog to pepper the bad guys with arrows and eventually beat them. So there are a bunch of different skill combinations throughout the game. Those are just a couple of examples. But basically, with those three characters, that was the crux of then what would happen throughout the rest of the game. That's Those combinations of those skill sets is what would allow you to get through the game and would allow you to beat any of the puzzles in the game. Before we get into more specifics, I do want to take a look at the back of the box because, I don't know, I find it interesting because back then, when games would be released, you really mostly only had the back of the box to go on to determine whether you were going to play a game or whether you were going to buy a game or not. I remember going to video game rental stores, and sometimes there were games I was unfamiliar with. All I could do was look at the box and determine whether it was going to be a good time or not, and sometimes the box lied to me, but I still enjoy looking at it anyway. So the back of the box for The Lost Vikings says, it's just another Old day of Nordic seafaring and pillaging when Eric the Swift, Baliog the Fierce, and Olaf the Stout are suddenly sucked into an alien spaceship. And only you can help them find their way home. But each mysterious door you help them through throws them into different eras in time and smack into new enemies. Will Baliog conquer Elmo the Dinosaur in Prehistoria? Will Olaf shield himself from the berserker mummies in the Great Pyramids of Egypt? And can Eric outrun the maniacal ripsaw in the Great Factory? Harry, only you can get these vanished Vikes out of the grasp of their alien captors and home through the chaotic arcade action. And then there's a list of different features. There's 102-player action, hours of arcade fun with hundreds of puzzles to solve and play, different worlds to explore, including Prehistoria, Egypt, the Great Factory, Wacky World, and more. Over 35 rip-roaring levels to enjoy. A jammin' musical score that'll make you want to get up and move. Control the different skills of all three Vikings to advance to the next level. The three distinct Viking personalities come alive as they talk to each other in humorous cartoon captions. And finally, automatic screensaver to prevent static images from burning into your television screen. That is the back of the box. That is the Lost Vikings, and that is basically what sold people on the game when you would come across it either at a video rental store or in a in a video game store that you would actually purchase the game. So with that, we are going to start talking more specifically about 
the review elements. And once again, we are going to talk about the graphics. How did it feel or how did it look to play? What was the visual elements or what were the visual elements? How was the overall presentation? We'll talk about sound and music. How did the sound effects do? Did the music really appeal or was it more grating? What was the narrative and story like if the game has it? Uh, then, of course, what are the playability or how does it feel to play? What are the controls like? And then finally, the overall feel before we pass our verdict on the overall experience. We will start with the graphics. And I will say the graphics were charming. They were very cartoony. You could really see how Blizzard started to develop their style even back then. Even back in in what would probably be its very first standalone individual intellectual property-based game, they were already creating very stylized, charming, cartoony kinds of graphics, and that persisted throughout pretty much their entire game catalog for the most part. And even today, even looking at the game through the or from the perspective of somebody playing it in 2022, The graphics look great, and part of that is because they decided to work on the graphics and make the graphics more stylized, more cartoon-based as opposed to realistic. That's the thing that sometimes happens with games, especially older titles, is the ones that have tried to look realistic may have looked realistic, and I'll use that term in quotes. You can't see me, but I'm kind of making those air quote kind of symbols. But the term realistic really only applies for the time in which the game was made. So if you make a game in 1992 and it looks realistic, that's not necessarily the same realism that applies to, say, making a game in 2022. And that's where some of the games from the older or the more retro kinds of systems fall a little bit flat when you start looking at the graphics. Because what is realism back then is not necessarily realism today. And a lot of times, because those graphics strive to be as real, once again in quotes, as possible, when you look at them from the perspective of today's graphics, where realism is actually pretty darn real, it just doesn't compare as well. When you have more stylized kind of graphics, like what we have in The Lost Vikings, you don't really run into that issue because the style doesn't change. The style still feels like you're almost playing a cartoon to a degree. So from that perspective, I think the graphics were awesome. I really enjoyed it. I thought I thought the game looked great. The animations and the quality of animations was really stellar from my perspective. And there were some animations in there that just made the game feel more alive. And just as an example, as you have each of the individual Vikings were animated discreetly. They all looked like they had their own animations. It wasn't a copy-paste kind of thing. It wasn't like just three of the same exact character models that would move through the scenes and would have the same animations, albeit with a different face or whatever. They were all individual characters. They all had their own animations. They all had their own idle animations. Uh, One of them, uh, I believe Baliog, would stand and kind of flex a little bit as he was standing around if he wasn't getting any action or wasn't able to perform anything because he was just sitting there. He would start flexing at the screen, and you would expect that because he was the weapon master. He he was the one that was kind of the strong guy that would beat up on all the enemies. Um, they all had their own animations. I was really impressed as well when a character would fall through the game, and there's a lot of falling in this game because there's a lot of levels to navigate that have a lot of verticality. When a character would fall the animations would just would look right. I mean, their their hair would kind of 
flap around in the wind a little bit. And if you would fall a, a significant distance, it would actually shift from the traditional kind of falling animation into much more of a, of a almost cartoon wily coyote kind of thing where they'd be like, oh, I'm kind of falling, kind of falling. And then it's at some point it gets to be, Oh crap, I'm really falling. And they keep falling even, even further. The animations were really well done and playing it today. The graphics were great. I have no complaints about the graphics at all. Um, so now switching over to sound and music, I played once again, I played the super Nintendo version. So my true perspective is around the super NES soundtrack and the music was good. It had a nice punchy soundtrack, each of the environments, and there were multiple worlds that you navigate through. We'll talk about that in a minute, but each of the environments, the music felt good. The music felt matched to the environment. When you're in Egypt, it felt, felt Egyptian. If you're in a factory, it felt industrial. The music really worked. The sound effects worked as well. The sound and music from my perspective definitely heightened the experience of playing the game. And that doesn't always happen. A lot of times music is just there and it may be good for background kind of tracks or just ambient sound, but doesn't really contribute all that positively to the overall experience with the lost Vikings that it absolutely did. And I thought the music was, was really strong. So I did mention earlier that the Genesis in particular had a different soundtrack and music. And even beyond that, if you look at the MS-DOS version, the MS-DOS version, I believe, had to use ad-lib synthesis. So it sounds even more different than, uh, than what their console counterparts did because the consoles had some pretty advanced software or pretty advanced uh, sound processing at the time. We're actually going to listen to a few different tracks right now. Actually, we're going to pretty much do just a couple different tracks from the different consoles and the different versions, at least excerpts, just to see what the experience was, what it sounded like, and do a little bit of a compare. So we will start with the Super Nintendo version. This is the one that I am most familiar with. We're just listening to one track here, and let's play that. You can hear the sound. It just sounds right. It's it sounds really good. It sounds as you would expect a game from that era to sound, but it doesn't sound bad at all. It sounds like something you would listen to even today in an indie title or something that's designed to be more retro. I could certainly listen to this today. Now let's listen to a track from the Genesis version and do a quick compare. Immediately, you can hear that the Genesis version just isn't quite as good, at least, and it, I know it's subjective, but it's just not quite as high quality as what the Super Nintendo version is. 
And like I said, subjective, but I definitely thought the Super Nintendo version was better. And now just for for kicks, let's listen to a soundtrack track from the uh, from the MS-DOS version. Once again, you're going to hear a difference immediately because this is all synthesis based and is not necessarily going to sound as rich as the console versions of the soundtrack. So let's take a quick listen to one of those tracks and then we can move on from the sound section. So as you could hear, the sound was pretty darn good. Super Nintendo version, probably the the superior one from my perspective. But honestly, sound was good. I have no no complaints about the music in the game. The sound effects were great, too. They all fit the actions that were happening. So really no complaints there. So we're going to move on to the narrative and the story. And this game did, in fact, have a story that that was portrayed throughout the the game. Basically, the concept is that Vikings, these three Vikings, were kidnapped by an evil galactic being known as Tomator. I I guess that's how you pronounce it. It was T-O-M-A-T-O-R, so I'm assuming Tomator. He's an alien guy that apparently wanted to steal some Vikings. So he stole them, and in order to escape, so basically the very first level of the game, you get captured and you're transported to Tomator's spaceship. And then throughout the game, you have to navigate through multiple levels in a bunch of different environments to reach the exit and progress through these different environments through time in order to eventually return to your own time and to your Viking families. Now, there are multiple environments throughout the game. The game starts on the spaceship, which has a couple of pretty much introductory kinds of levels, let you start getting used to the game and how you move the characters around. Then there is uh, a bunch of levels that are based in prehistoric times with dinosaurs and cavemen and things like that. You move on to Egypt with Egyptian kinds of things like mummies and other kinds of critters from that era. Eventually you move into more of a factory base level. This is very industrial. There's lots of robots and buzzsaws and things like that. And there is a section of levels, which is basically just called wacky world, I think. And that's just wacky stuff. It's a little bit comical, a little bit over the top, almost circus like kinds of environment. Um, And each of the environments beyond having different enemies, which all fit in nicely with what you would expect to see in those environments, they also include different Uh, puzzle-based elements or different mechanics within each of the levels. So just as an example, within the wacky world, you might be able to inflate yourself like a balloon and float through the level and, and reach different areas. Within the factory world, you might be able to control a crane that can move magnets or that has a magnet that can be moved around. You can move different things from a crane and move different beams and stuff around to create bridges. So they all had those kind of things built in. There were also uh, text interludes between each of the levels where you'd get a little bit of story there. Most of them were designed to be comical in nature and, and effectively involved the individual Vikings talking with each other and, 
and talking about what they just did or how they got through the level and what they were supposed to be doing next. I wouldn't call the text laugh out loud funny. It was amusing. I enjoyed it. It wasn't anything that I would necessarily write home about, but it wasn't it wasn't bad at all. There were also a bunch of different exchanges that would occur if you failed a given level a lot. And there were some levels I failed a lot. I feel like I've seen pretty much every bit of derogatory text in the game because a lot of times the Vikings would insult you if you continue to fail. And eventually even Thor himself shows up and uh, says, what the heck are you guys doing? You get, like in, in my time, we had we had to get through these levels and it was, it was much more difficult, but we got through it quicker than you are. Like, what the heck's going on, guys? And the only the only thing they can do is kind of point the finger at the player, which in this case was me, and say, it's, it's, it's his fault. And I agree, it was my fault. But the game is actually pretty darn difficult, which gets us into the playability and controls section. Now, here's an area where I have some opinions, and they may not be as positive opinions as what I've felt so far. I mean, I think the graphics were great, sound and music, great. Narrative was fine. I mean, it wasn't like an overarching RPG-style operatic sequence, but for what was there, it was it was totally fine. The controls take some getting used to. Now, this game had puzzle platform elements, which means the puzzles weren't necessarily things that you would see in a puzzle game and that you're not connecting dots from here to there. You're not trying to solve standalone puzzle kinds of things. The puzzle in this game was how do you traverse the environment to get from the start to the finish without losing any of your characters. So once again, similar in many respects, at least conceptually, to Lemmings. How do you how do you get these creatures from point A to point B without a ton of them dying? In the case of the Lost Vikings, without any of them dying. So the platforming is really what, what provides the basis for a lot of the puzzles, or at least the execution of the puzzles. And that was an area where, at least early on, I was having some difficulty getting used to the controls. The controls felt kind of floaty to me. It wasn't, it, it had, each of the characters had some inertia, some more than others. Eric in particular, he's the fast Viking, was kind of difficult to control and make sure that you were hitting the mark that you wanted to get on. Like there might be spring pads that you have to bounce off of and, and just trying to navigate and make sure you hit the spring pad in the right area, especially when each of the Vikings had different inertia and different movement speeds for everybody was a little bit of a challenge. And sometimes I did get frustrated with the controls and that did lessen as you go throughout the game because you get used to it and, and you start to compensate or you start to learn the language of the controls for the individual game. So eventually I got pretty good at navigating the levels and not making some of those silly mistakes but it does take some getting used to. This is not a game that is just pick up and it feels 100% perfect right out of the gate. Like, like the kind of game that I would say is like that, where you pick it up and you're just like, oh, this this just feels right. Pretty much any Mario game, from my perspective. That that kind of Nintendo platformer, or that, that secret sauce that they use, those games just feel perfect. And from a controls perspective... And just the way it felt to move the characters, it, it was a little bit of getting used to for the Lost Vikings for me. So I wasn't I wasn't super thrilled about it. It does get better over time, but at least right out of the gate, it was not the most pleasant experience. 
A couple other things to call attention to here. Uh, the whole enemies included in the game. So there is some combat there, and Baliog, as an example, can certainly have direct combat with enemies. Now, the way the enemies work is they're pretty, pretty tough. If you get cornered by an enemy, especially the buzzsaws on the factory level, you will die. There is no doubt about it in my mind. You might be able to survive, but everybody, each of the Vikings only have three hit points, and you can replenish that with food throughout the levels, or you might uh, get an extra, there's an extra item that will give you a little shield bubble that basically acts as an additional hit point. So there are some ways to combat the general difficulty of the enemies. And a lot of times when you use Baliog, you can use your arrow, and that creates a little bit of distance between you and the enemies if the arrow hits. But some of the enemies are pretty darn tough. And if you don't have Olaf with you, and Olaf is the shield Viking, if you don't have him with you, to help create some space or to help block the either projectiles or other creatures from getting close to you, you're going to be in for a world of hurt. Eric, you might be able to jump over some of them with, uh, you might be able to kill them quickly enough with Baliog, but especially as you go through the later levels, the enemies have some pretty high hit points as well. It's not like a one hit, one kill kind of thing. So if you get trapped by an enemy, you will likely die. And that could sometimes lead to some frustration as well. Now the puzzles in this game we're not terribly difficult in concept. It's not like you're going to be scratching your head for hours trying to figure out how to exit or how to how to figure out each individual level. That's not where the difficulty lies. The difficulty in this game comes from not knowing what you need to do or how you need to navigate a level in order to solve or in order to get through the puzzle. So I'll give you an example. Especially later on in the game, there are going to be some levels where you have to have specific Vikings go down specific paths in order to be successful. And there are some levels where you almost have three paths that you have to navigate independently. And each of those paths are designed around a specific Vikings skill set. Now, you may not know which path applies until you try it out. So maybe you see a path off to the left of the screen, and because you don't see a heck of a lot of the level on each of the screens to begin with, because these are much more confined kind of levels. You don't really have any sort of scrolling available to check out what might be over to the left or over to the right or up or down or whatever. You might send one of your Vikings down a particular path and eventually realize, oh crap, this isn't the path designed for that Viking. I'm now stuck and I have to restart the level. Or just maybe it creates a extra difficulty for you. But a lot of times you do have to, in fact, restart the level. And I restarted levels quite a bit as I progressed through the game. Some were just execution errors on my part. I didn't do the level the right way, or I, I got trapped, or I fell off the world, or I fell off a platform and I didn't, or I spiked myself, I impaled myself on some spikes. There's any number of things that could catch you here. But the, uh, the navigation of the levels rely especially later on on some trial and error and that can sometimes create a little bit of frustration as well because sometimes that trial and error doesn't become apparent where the solution to the trial and error doesn't become apparent until later in the level which means you may lose progress that you thought you were doing great and then you finally get to a part where it's just it, everything falls apart and and you can't progress so you have to restart the level overall the playability it, it was fine to play the controls were a little, it took some getting used to for me. Um, so a little bit of a knock there, at least from my perspective, but not something I would consider significant, but definitely something that's noticeable, especially if you compare it to some of the other games of the time. 
So overall, how did I feel? How did I feel playing the Lost Vikings? I have to say, I enjoyed it. I thought it was a good game. I thought it was a good experience. It it, it holds up even to today. There are some minor things, minor frustrations to, that you have to deal with. So a couple of things I want to just note, and we talked a little bit about some some stuff before, but there is some frustration. I did feel some frustration executing some of the platforming elements of the different levels. And that's partially the controls and getting used to the controls. Part of that is just, there is a lot of precision needed to get through some of these levels, much more than what I would have expected. And once I wrapped my head around that, it got a little bit better, but there are some levels that just require an insane amount of precision and even some levels that require a good amount of timing in between switching between characters and making sure the right character is doing the right thing at the right time and juggling all of that in addition to the platforming elements is a little tricky. It was it was difficult. It was a much more difficult experience than what I expected, especially the late levels. Some of those late levels were incredibly difficult. I think there were there was at least one level that I spent well over an hour trying to beat. And that's not because I didn't understand what I needed to do. I knew exactly what I needed to do, but the execution and trying to actually execute what I needed to do, it just wasn't happening for me. And there were several times where I would get two of the Vikings to the exit. And then the third one right near the exit, I would slip and fall in a, in a spike trap and die, which means I have to redo the whole level again. And and that was frustrating. I'm a big believer in playing the games as they were originally designed, which means I don't use save states. I don't do, I don't use walkthroughs. I basically just try to address or try to play the game the way I would have played it back when it was released. And in doing so, you can sometimes hit some of that frustration because the experience was, was good. It wasn't ridiculously smooth. It wasn't, it didn't have a lot of the creature comforts that you would expect today. There are no checkpoints in levels. If you fail, then you you fail. You have to restart the level. None of the levels were were too large. There was one level late in the game. I think it was the second to last level where there it actually had multiple stages that had to be completed without dying. And by multiple stages, I mean you basically have to get to the exit three times throughout the stage in order to win. And that was just a little bit unfair. <laughs> At least it, it felt unfair because I got past this first section and I thought, oh, that, was, that wasn't that was a bad level. That was actually pretty darn easy. And then you get to the exit and then you get notified, nope, nope, this isn't the exit. You got to do more. So you go do more and then you get to the exit and you're once again told, nope, nope, you, you still got to do more. This is not the end of the level. And then you do it one more time and finally you, you, you exit the level. But it really hurt when you get to the third stage of, of one of these levels of this level and you fail right at the end, because then you have to go through another couple stages of that level before you can even get back to the part where you failed on. And the thing is that the levels, like I said, aren't terribly difficult to understand what to do. And this particular level that I'm referencing was the, the first stage in particular was really not hard. Even the second stage wasn't too, too bad. Uh, but if you fail on the third, you got to redo these two other areas, which may not be difficult, just repetitive and, and a little tedious. So not having those checkpoints in there, I, I get it. I understand that was just the stylistic choice of the time where that was kind of the design philosophy of the time, but it did take away a little bit from the experience and added some frustration there. Now, difficulty was, was okay. It, there was a ramp up from the beginning 
I did feel like there were some difficult difficulty spikes throughout the game where the ramp wasn't quite as smooth as it could have been, especially the late, late levels. The difficulty just jumps up dramatically. I can't overstate it enough how dramatically the difficulty ramps up when you get to the later levels, especially the later levels in the wacky world and then the spaceship levels, and not just the difficulty in execution, but also the length of the individual levels seems to increase as well, which means not only are you dying more because the difficulty is harder, but you're also having to spend more time in the levels because it's they're just larger levels, more things to do, more things that you have to take into account, more things you have to work from a timing perspective. Uh, so it was definitely challenging. I think they could have smoothed things out a little bit with the difficulty ramp. And, and interestingly, the um, one of the founders of the game was talking about were the founders of the company when it, back when it was Silicon and Synapse was talking about the fact that they were in a mall one day and they were watching some kid start playing the game at, at like a mall kiosk to try out the game and very first level, which is like the easiest level in the game. All you have to do is jump over a pit of electricity and he didn't, he couldn't figure out how to jump. He slipped and he fell in the electricity and he died and um, he walked away frustrated. So the, the developer said, you know, this actually shaped our design philosophy from that point forward. We, we had to make it so that we could introduce the mechanics to the player in a way that was not frustrating. We needed to make sure that the difficulty ramp up was fair and felt good as opposed to uh, going out right out of the gate and, and making things feel frustrating or unfair or, or just making it so that there might be players out there that try the game once and they're like, nope, this isn't for me or it's too difficult and just walk away. So interestingly enough, the difficulty ramp or lack thereof actually provided some uh, future kind of viewpoints for Blizzard as they continued to develop games where they basically said, no, we got to make this, especially the early experience, we need to make it a much more welcoming kind of experience for the player so that they actually stick with the game. Now, that being said about the difficulty ramp up, I really enjoyed levels that had environmental puzzles that were included. So there's a couple of a couple of examples here that I'll use just so that you can get a sense for what I'm talking about. Some of the levels you had to shoot different things like either chains holding blocks or there might be some fire shoots that you had to shoot the pipe in order to make the fire go away, those kind of things. I didn't realize just how much interactivity there would be in some of these stages until you get in there and you start playing around with it and you see, oh, look, there's something I could actually blow up or shoot or, or whatever. So I enjoyed those elements. I thought it was a good change of pace. The favorite or my favorite environmental, so to speak, puzzle element mechanic, whatever the right word is, and this is one that only appears in a couple levels, but I absolutely thought was ingenious, is the way that you can... So basically, let me take a step back. When you play as Baliog and you shoot an arrow, by default, that arrow disappears when it falls off the side of the screen. So you have a certain amount of screen real estate. You shoot the arrow. If it goes past the side of the screen, the arrow disappears. It's not like it exists and continues to move forward in the game world, albeit without you seeing it. It just disappears. There are a couple levels where the puzzle involves Baliog shooting an arrow, and you basically have to keep the arrow alive by shifting the screen by switching characters. So let's say you have Baliog on the far left of a level, and you have Eric or Olaf on the far right of a level. 
after Baliog shoots the arrow, you may have to switch characters to one of the other characters, which basically, when you switch characters, the screen itself scrolls. So it's not like it just magically flips over to the new character. It scrolls between the characters. So if you do it and you have your characters positioned the right way, you can shoot the arrow, hit the switch character trigger, and it would move the screen. And as the screen is moving, the arrow stays alive because you can still see the arrow. And basically that allows you to make arrows traverse much larger areas than what they would otherwise be able to traverse. Because like I said, by default, if an arrow reaches the end of the screen or the edge of the screen, it will disappear from the game world entirely. That was probably one of my favorite environmental mechanics in the game because I just thought it was ingenious. And the first time it happened and the first time I figured out that that was what I had to do, I thought, whoa, that's actually really cool. I like that. I really, really enjoyed that element of the game. Something else that I I guess I enjoyed, I'm still, jury's out on this one. It had difficulty by, by uh, certainty, by, by absolute certainty there was more difficulty here is that you couldn't have any of your characters die in order to complete a level. All three Vikings had to survive the level. And that was an interesting design choice. I thought it added a degree of difficulty, certainly. It added a degree of frustration, most definitely, because you might be able to get two of your three Vikings out and then you mess up on the final part of one level and you have to restart the whole thing, even though two of your guys are already at the exit. So I get what they were going for there. I can respect the difficulty that came along with it. And I will say there was some frustration there, at least for me. Um, and we did also talk a little bit about the trial and error aspects of some of the puzzles and getting into unwinnable positions because you sent the wrong Viking down the wrong path. Um, it, it was it was okay. I mean, that definitely happened. It was definitely some frustration there. A lot of times those decisions happen near the beginning of the level. So your overall impact as far as having to restart was minimized. But there were some times where those kind of decisions happened later in the levels. And because of the trial and error uh, nature of a lot of the way the game worked, it certainly added a more frustration. It made you have to restart more and was a little unfair. At least it felt a little unfair to me as I was going through the game. Now, with those critiques aside, we have to think from a verdict perspective, where does this game sit? I told you I enjoyed it. I, I mostly enjoyed the experience. There were some frustrations here. Did the Lost Vikings reach the pantheon of classic gaming? Not quite. No, it is, though, a golden oldie. This is a game that I do recommend. Now, I never played the Lost Vikings back when it was released. This is the first time I've played the game. So I am coming at it from the perspective of negative nostalgia, zero nostalgia here. I, I have no nostalgia for the game and nostalgia is a powerful thing. A lot of times you feel nostalgia for something and it makes the whole experience feel better than what you might otherwise feel if you were experiencing it for the first time. So I have no nostalgia here that could carry the game forward into my personal pantheon of classic gaming, but it is definitely worth the play. It is a true golden oldie. I think that, that everybody should experience the game. If you like puzzle kind of games, or you like puzzle platform games, you should give it a try. There are some frustrating elements here. It's not, it is not the most straightforward experience. It is definitely a tricky game, not the puzzles. The puzzles aren't really difficult, but the platforming is challenging and uh, definitely the controls have an impact there. So 
it's something that go in with your eyes wide open. It's not the best game out there, or at least from my perspective, but it is something that should be experienced. You should experience the game. Now, I will say, though, if you get turned off by frustrating levels or repetition when you fail, like I said, there are no checkpoints. There's really it doesn't really hold your hand. If you fail, you're going to restart some levels. You might want to steer clear. If that kind of thing sounds absolutely repulsive to you, I would I would avoid the game. But like I said, if not it, you owe it to the game. You owe it to yourself to try it out. It is a golden oldie from my perspective. That was our episode on the Lost Vikings. I hope you all enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed playing and talking about it. Just a quick reminder, we do have social media out there. You can follow me and interact with me on Twitter with the handle at ClassicGamingT. I also have an email address, ClassicGamingToday at gmail.com. So if anybody is interested in having a discussion, would like to provide some feedback, or would like to write in and have your comments read on the show, feel free to reach out. I am very interested in continuing to grow the community, and I would love to hear what you all think. Now, our next episode, which will be coming in around a week, is going to be focused on Rebel Assault, which was a cinematic Star Wars Rails shooter released in the earlier 90s. Feel free to write in if you have any opinions about it. If you'd like, once again, your comments read on the show, let me know. I would love to uh, read them. I'd love to hear what you all think about the game. And uh, I will not give any spoilers here because I certainly have my own opinions of it based on when I played it as a kid. And certainly now, as I'm playing it as an adult, I have some I have some thoughts. I would love to share them. I'd love to hear some of your thoughts as well. I'd also encourage everybody to, if you feel the desire to do so, leave a review on your podcast service of choice. Now, as always, I am not interested in bolstering star counts or getting artificial inflation of, of stars and ratings and things like that. That's not what this is all about. I want to make sure that I'm creating the best possible podcast for all of you. I want to make sure that our community is thriving and I want to make sure that I can get the feedback needed in order for this to be the most successful podcast that it can possibly be. The only way to do that is if I can get some feedback from everybody. So I encourage everybody to leave a review. If it's positive, awesome. If it's not so positive, let me know that too, because I want to make sure that we are making something that is truly special and that all of us can enjoy. We are still growing. We are trying to develop the community. That growing and developing the community aspect will probably never end. That's just continual. But I do feel the need to continue to mention it because it is really one of my goals here. It's not just about doing research about games or talking about games and playing them, things like that. I really want to experience the whole gamut of gaming and the discussion and just, I want to experience it with everybody. I want to have, I want to build that community so that we can have those discussions. I'm excited about it. I hope you all are too. So we will be back in around a week with our next episode. And until then, I just want you all to remember, sometimes the gaming experiences of the past are just as good, if not better than the games of today. Goodbye, everyone. 